Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody also enjoyed our last episode with Tony Colbert. If you haven't heard it, make sure you go back and check it out. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to mention our partnership again with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brands strive to provide premium, aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at capouk. Now for today's guest. Here is a snippet of what to expect. Why aren't there more full-time sports psychologists in men's professional football? We have sports scientists, we have analysts, we have set-piece coaches, um, we have uh, nutritionists, we have virtually every other specialism you could imagine um, to, to gain an edge on performance. Yet there still seemed to be this, this hold back on psychology. Um, so I wanted to try and understand that, um, both from a performance perspective and from a mental health perspective, because um, you know we we talk a lot now about mental health. We talk a lot about the provision that that we need to offer, um, but there still seems to be this disconnect between believing that it's important and believing that we need to respect it and, and take care of players and actually what we're doing in practice as, as a sport in this country and as, as a profession. We're excited to welcome David Wheeler onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. David is a professional footballer who currently plays for Wickham Wanderers. With over 300 professional appearances under his belt, David is a seasoned professional with vast experiences in the game. But as a young boy, and at the start of his professional career, David suffered from severe anxiety, which led him down a path of exploration. While still playing, David chose to enhance his knowledge and experiences outside of the game, and he now holds a master's degree in sports psychology. He shares his thoughts and learnings from several different perspectives with us in today's podcast. David Wheeler, Welcome to the Golders Podcast. Thanks for having me. The pleasure's all ours. I'm curious to listen to your answer to the following question. To us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Um, I think the most obvious meaning for me of Goldust is talent, rare talent, a, a rare piece of skill, spark, in a match um, in football where maybe two teams are cancelling each other out and you have one player that can just produce something different that, that no one else had thought of or no one else is capable of doing. And, of course, we'll sort of unravel what you do very surely. You've experienced lots of that because we know we've tracked the team that you play for because David and I, my son, and my family are... Keen followers of the club you play for. So, David, in terms of that, just moving back to that little bit about your your career, um, can you just share with us a little bit about your background in professional football? 
Yeah, so um, I came into it a slightly strange way. I'd done my degree in sports science um, before going to football. Um, I was playing non-league at National League South level, um, which they, I think they call step two now, which is a new phrase for me. Um, but yeah, so I'd just I'd played against someone a couple of times who played for Bath City, and he ended up he was an ex-professional, played for for Wickham and Bristol City, um, and he cornered me in a bar and and just said, oh, "Would you fancy playing professionally?" And I always had, you know, wanted to be a professional footballer. It just never got to the stage where. Um, it worked out for me, and um, but he arranged for me to have a trial in pre-season with Exeter, and uh, I was there for the whole of pre-season. And fortunately, got offered a contract a couple of days before the start of the season, um, and then started the first ten games of the season in League Two, um, and then went from there really, um, and played four seasons at Exeter, and then had a really good end last season there where I'd scored 20 goals and just lost in the playoff final and following year got um got signed by QPR in the championship and was signed a three-year contract but only was really there for one year um went on loan the second year to Portsmouth and then MK Dons got promoted from League Two with MK Dons um and then moved on to Wickham got promoted in the first year from League One to the Championship with Wickham, relegated the second year, and then playoff final last year. And this year we're trying to make the playoffs again. And that's sort of my career in a short way up to now. Lots of experience. Yeah. Yeah, lots of ups and downs. Oh, you've, t- you've teed it up lovely there because that's we're going to delve into that. The ups part of it, which is wonderful but what about the other experiences and we'll I'm sure you'll you'll unravel some of what you've encountered during your playing career uh so dealing with nerves is part of any sportsman's pre-match preparation uh, but while many will be familiar with the tingling of butterflies which we've all experienced at some point few have had to cope with bouts of vomiting it, it was a routine you lived with for a long period of time and there were times when you'd be sick in the toilet before going out for the kickoff half time, and equally you couldn't eat properly, which obviously is going to affect performance. And so, therefore, I'd what was perceived to be or is dealt to be extreme levels of competitive anxiety. How did you cope with that during that period? Um, I think I. Up until that point, it was very normalised for me because I'd experienced it from a very young age, from, say, five or six years old. I'd got competitive anxiety. I was, I'd was, i be sick before sports days in primary school, secondary school, um, often sick before athletics meets, sometimes you know, going out to bat for cricket or um, before football matches. Uh, and other things in my my normal life, so um, award ceremonies, um, formal dinners, uh, uh, even weddings, things like that, could suffer some serious bouts of anxiety, and that that was sort of my whole childhood, really. And then it sort of it got to the point when I got to Exeter that I I was still getting it, and and realised that 
I, I may be able to sustain League Two football for a little bit, but in order to be successful at that level or, or beyond, I would have to address these feelings because it would affect my performance or certainly affect my consistency because, you know, I could have a serious bout every, every so often and people would just put it down to not being able to perform or not performing well or, you know, having an off day. Do you feel that what we're looking at is a cause and effect? Was the cause created due to the, the environment that you were in? Uh, are you a product of that or how did that shape up? I think um, certainly in recent years, I've come to realise that most things in life are very nuanced and you, you can't put things in boxes cleanly, hardly anything when it comes to human beings um, as much as we want to. So I would say it's both. I would say that my environment definitely played a factor, but I would also say that there was some natural level of anxiety within me that I was born with because my mum experienced it, my nan experienced it. And but I also think I learned there were some learned behaviours there which actually perpetuated the feelings rather than um, helped me resolve them or help not necessarily resolve them, but help me um, function effectively and, and even flourish despite them. So, yes, I think I had a natural level of sort of heightened um, anxiety or uh, a fight or flight response when it came to to these things. But obviously that can be beneficial to performance um, and it's just the way you interpret it to a large extent. So I think I had I had pretty poor ways dealing with it naturally. Uh, I also think that some of it was like you like you adhere to environmental aspects where I was either copying or reflecting what my mum was doing or dealing with it not in the right way um, as she, because she obviously didn't know how to deal with it either. But also I think uh, another theme certainly was that my whole personality and my self-worth was too dependent upon um sporting success david you've you've openly spoken about your earlier playing career where you obviously experienced the anxiety the stress and and even rejection how do you feel your earlier playing career has now influenced the way that you actually look at professional football i think it's it's a good question because I certainly think that a lot of the, the difficulties I went through, I, I learned a lot of lessons, but learned them maybe in a, in a lengthier, more difficult way. But in order to learn those lessons, I had to have gone through that to some extent. If I'd have had the tools from a young age to know how to deal with what I was going through psychologically, but also to some extent, had the tools to know how to navigate the politics of of having a professional football career, whether it be contracts and whether to move clubs or stay at clubs, and then also the coaching on the pitch as well. Yeah, I think perhaps I could have accelerated my career and you know to higher levels quicker. But I think, and and they often have this discussion of oh, could I have done more? Could I have worked harder could I have played better 
could I've done this sooner? But I think that it comes back to being compassionate to yourself and just say, well, I was doing a degree at the same time as playing part-time. So it's not always easy to throw everything into something when there's no guarantee that it's going to work out. You used the word tools a few times in that previous answer. I'm curious to find out what those tools were and what strategies did you deploy that actually ultimately helped you to get to where you are currently? Um, well, I think one thing that I was very fortunate about that I was um, naturally doing was I wasn't really using avoidance behavior. So um, often when things can spiral out of control and get really difficult is when you start to avoid things to try and avoid the feeling of, of fear that you're getting from them. Due to my upbringing, due to my mum and dad, I was quite a values-led person. So I didn't, not only did I not want to let myself down, I didn't want to let my teammates down um, or my family down and friends. So I was very sure that however uncomfortable it was going to be for me, I was still going to go and do it. And if I said I was going to do something, I was still going to do it. So that was very, that's very fortunate because that's quite a big thing to overcome if, if you weren't able, if you weren't naturally doing that. But I addressed it by going and getting the six free sessions on the NHS for mental health support that I managed to get via my GP. And uh, that was generally cognitive behavioral therapy. So it was kind of um, reframing and, and re reassessing restructuring how i thought about or how i interpreted events um and a lot a lot of that was about um think putting positive framing on things and despite coming from a very loving and caring household i think it was quite negative in a lot of ways it was um there's a lot of negative spin on on events which i didn't really really notice until i left home i'd say the other very fortunate thing i think was my wife is that she's almost annoyingly positive at times so that kind of almost give me a reset and and give me a you know if i had an in a in a dialogue and in a monologue of negativity she was always there in the background to say oh no but what about this oh no but maybe look at it in this way and it was a good way of combating that um it certainly helped me um and then in latter years meeting up again with my supervisor who I had for my degree, uh, Misha Jervis, the psychologist, sports psychologist. She introduced me to acceptance and commitment therapy and which completely the, the concepts of, of that completely spoke to me and to my experience and my, my life experience and, and made me really understand and, and well, it just gave me a much deeper knowledge of why I was feeling the way I was feeling. So having Misha, who I know I know personally as well, is a, a outstanding, exceptionally good at doing what she does. Having that support from a sports psychologist helped to frame things up in a more positive light for you. Yeah, it it's helped me to certainly be kinder to myself because I think it would be a very common feeling amongst people that have dealt with anxiety or depression, addiction, whatever, can be very, very, very hard on yourself a lot of the time and be thinking, oh, why do I do this? Or why why am I like this? Um, why can't I just snap out of it? What's wrong with me? All these thoughts go through your head. And uh, 
I, I was definitely one of those people. And so, yeah, having some self-compassion was definitely a big thing. But also having through through Misha, through understanding more about acceptance and com commitment therapy is, is realizing that you don't have to try and get rid of those negative thoughts. It's not about trying to be rid of them because you won't it's it's a it's about acceptance it's about accepting that your brain's going to tell you certain things but then having the realization that you can choose the path that you want to choose um it doesn't have control over you and a conversation we had very recently actually was about um cold water therapy like ice baths for mental health and discussing that about how your whole body, when you jump in an ice bath, your whole body is telling you to get out. Um, your whole body doesn't want to be there, and you're in your you're actually you're choosing to stay there. And that's a sort of very crystallized example of you actually have power over your thoughts, and you can choose what to do. I think on the back of that, obviously, you've you've talked about some of the stuff you've gone through. Obviously, playing at Wickham, you, you've experienced and, and continue to experience being in a football environment that's safe and inclusive. So, obviously, regardless of what you're going through, you're probably in an environment that helps. What benefits come from creating a culture that allows everyone to speak freely and openly about where they're at or how they feel? I think the benefits uh, are so many, are so numerous that uh, you you're bound to forget some. I think like just going from uh, a mental health point of view for starters, I would say that you you don't feel like you have to conceal things as much, and so you don't have that pent up tension, that pent up stress uh, on a day to day basis because you're you feel comfortable and open to speak about it with with teammates or with staff, and it's going to mean that you're less likely to to get an injury. I think or less likely to you lose your temper in training. And so that's that's a huge thing. I think it can help with team cohesion, um, with trust. Um, if there's a if there's a big amount of trust um and res mutual respect within a team, then I think there's no coincidence that you'd run more for each other, not just for yourself on the pitch. You're you're looking out for each other. And that's not really quantifiable, I don't think, over the course of a season. But I strongly believe that it's it's worth numerous points because you're willing to go that extra mile for, for your teammates as well as yourself and the staff. I think if you're creating that environment, you also have the opportunity to hear opinions from... You hear opportunity to hear every different perspective, whether that be from a young player, a senior player, player that's playing every week or a player that's barely kicked a ball you can hear every angle when people feel confident and, and comfortable you can fit you can hear every angle of the of the changing room um so you get a really full and clear picture of what's going well what needs improving um and how you can move forward as a group well knowing a little bit of the history at Wickham purely and simply in in knowing the assistant manager who's now at QPR knowing him as a man outside of the sport, but, and I'm sure Gareth, obviously, Gareth Ainsworth, I'm referring to as well, played big parts in that. But when players are under stress, how vital is peer group leadership 
and support in helping players through those challenging periods and as a consequence of uh, helping them to come through it? Yeah, I think it's especially important when if someone's personal life is very chaotic, if if they've got issues at home with partners or if they'd have a they'd, they've had a bereavement or um any other amount of stress at home if you can create a safe environment a positive safe environment at work then that can have a huge huge positive um almost cathartic impact on someone um for their mental health for their physical health i think it's much less likely that they're gonna have a muscular injury if 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 they're less stressed and yeah i mean the evidence the evidence shows that and i think as well if you're if the less stressed you are the more relaxed you are the more focused you are in the present in the present moment then you're going to be able to perform closer to your your best on the pitch rather than if your mind's racing and wandering to to things that are happening outside of football we've touched a little bit on obviously your relationship with Misha and of all the benefits that you experienced, you've now got a keen interest in sports psychology and you've actually gone on to study a master's in sport, sports psychology while still playing. Can you just share with us what your research was about? Yeah. So the nagging question I had throughout my master's, um, and which I ended up doing my dissertation on was why aren't there more full-time sports psychologists in men's professional football? We have sports scientists, we have analysts, we have set piece coaches, um, we have uh, nutritionists, we have virtually every other specialism you could imagine um, to to gain an edge on performance. Yet there still seemed to be this this hold back on psychology. So I wanted to try and understand that, both from a performance perspective and from a mental health perspective, because you know we we talk a lot now about mental health. We talk a lot about the provision that that we need to offer, but there still seems to be this disconnect between believing that it's important and believing that we need to respect it and and take care of players and actually what we're doing in practice as as a sport in this country and as as a profession. So what did you ascertain from doing your research? There were lots of things, really, lots of themes that came out of it, some which I wasn't particularly looking for um, that came up. But one of the big things was football culture. There still seems to be an issue with football culture. When I say that, I mean... Like specific, specifically the the attitude towards mental health and it, it's still seemingly being a bit of a stigma and a bit of a taboo to speak about mental health. And there's probably there's probably some crossover in all male dominated professions, but male sports specifically, I think it's probably even more heightened because of the reluctance to show any weakness, the reluctance and the fear that you might lose your place in the team because of being open about your mental health and also there seemingly being a, a, a bigger acceptance among managers. Managers are the ones that I interviewed a bigger acceptance among managers that their players can seek help outside of the club. 
whereas where I'm saying or I've suggested that that's kind of saying out of sight, out of mind, like we're happy for you to seek help as long as we don't hear about it or know about it. Whereas I would say to break down that stigma and taboo, then you need someone in house. You need someone that knows the players well on a on a and have a relationship with them and have a connection with them and make it clear that no, this is okay to be speaking spoken about. This is okay to be open about. This isn't going to affect your um, selection of the team any more than it would if you just got a knock in training. That being said, then do you now look at playing football through a different set of lenses based on those experiences that you've had? Yeah, without a doubt. I think there's such a huge gulf in what we're currently doing in this country and what we could be doing. And I think if you're looking at it from a, if if you like, patriotic competitive angle, if you want the English national team ultimately to be successful, I think from grassroots up, we need to take psychology a lot more seriously and promote it a lot more um, aggressively, both for the mental health and performance levels. We we also we see the amount of young lads that want to be professional footballers that don't make it. So you know, less than one percent that that make it as a professional, even you know, a fraction of that that say make um, an actual decent say 10, 10 to 15 year career out of the game. So yeah, what are we, what are we doing? Should we be catering for them? I think, I think we probably should be, if we can help these, if we can help most lads that, that are trying to become professional footballers at the very least to have the tools to deal with the pressures, the, the disappointments that football throws up. Um, I think that's that's definitely going to filter up to the quality that we see in our national team, the quality see all throughout the leagues, and the level of emotional intelligence that lads that come out of football um, can have. Because I think being good at competitive sport, the the skills that you need for that are very transferable to many other walks of life. So if if people can come out of of football and feel that they have the other tools that they need, you know, the emotional intelligence that they need to function in, in normal life, in other walks of life, then, then that's going to be hugely beneficial to society as well. If you had to mandate professional clubs to improve in one area of the game, what area would you say needs more investment? Oh yeah. So, so I'm perhaps you could suggest I'm biased, but I would say psychology is, one of the biggest missed opportunities of the, the last few decades. I think we've known of the performance um, benefits of psychology and certainly the mental health benefits of psychology can bring for decades. And for for the reasons that I've, I've outlined in parts in my dissertation, and there, I'm sure there are some that I've, I've left out that uh, we haven't been able to do that. I think, and another one to to touch on is how insular football is, how it's often people that know people that get jobs rather than by other means. It's very male dominated, so can be difficult for women to to break into that that world. Uh, for female sports psychologists, for example, I think the fascination with with short termism and instant results in football um, is an issue. Not not much long term thinking, not long term planning. Because why should we cater for 
players' mental health when they might not be here in six months' time, in one year's time? Why should we hire a sports psychologist at the behest of a manager who may not be here in, in a year's time? All these things roll into it. Also, there seems to be a fascination with quantitative um, as opposed to qualitative results to things that are tangible. So, you know, we hear a lot about XG, um, a lot of statistics, but there's plenty about the sport of football and any other sport that you can't put into numbers. You can't put into numbers that feeling of being in the flow, that feeling of momentum, that feeling that uh, your teammate gives you when he gives you a hug if you missed a chance or, or made a mistake for a goal. You can't quantify those things. And we've neglected that, I think, for for too for too long. I think that moves nicely. I've got a question around relationships. You mentioned something there around relationships with players. So obviously you miss a chance and you play one of your teammates come over and, and helps you through that moment. But from a coaching standpoint, to create meaningful relationships with players, what qualities do you think coaches need to possess? I think first and foremost, you need to be very comfortable in yourself and you need to have a lot of self-awareness. You need to leave your ego at the door and you need to be selfless and compassionate. I think most things start with you. I think most of the negative things that come from management or people in positions of power is that they haven't resolved or dealt with their own issues and they're then projected onto players or staff beneath them um so if i think i think if you have someone that's very comfortable in their self know in their own skin know who they are know what their values are and live by them and they essentially live for others and they work for others then i think that is the best possible starting point and i think if they they believe that they are they are to be of service of of others and you know, I'm reading a book at the minute called Leaders Eat Last, and it's sort of a nice, nice way of of putting it in the sense that you you put people before yourself. So I think those are big things. The ability to build relationships is huge. The ability to well to have mo- emotional intelligence to recognise that different people operate in different ways. They need different things. They need different ways of being motivated. They need different handling. And to be aware, have awareness enough of others and not get wrapped, too wrapped up in what you're doing is, is really, really important because, you know, you, you can miss body language. You can miss cues that can be really, really important for how someone's day is going to pan out. So in essence, really, you're referring to, for coaches, managers, to be they're cultural architects. Are they shape their landscape, could in ultimately influence performances rather than being ball, big cone stuff, players and all tactical X's and O's, what you're referring to is something far more powerful and that's the helping players to optimise performances. Coaches first need to realise that it's a person first rather than a player. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, person person centered and person person led is is certainly the best way of of operating. I think. I think also the manager needs to have integrity. 
as soon as you're you start being ambiguous and start going away from what what your values are what you purport your values are then players are just going to start questioning whether they they trust who you are they trust what you're saying they trust that you believe what you're saying so integrity integrity is huge because the trust the trust between the manager and the player is or the manager and the team is can be essentially what brings you success and keeps you in a job keeps players at the club and wanting to play for you staying on to the same subject really to to help players work towards their optimum performance david what advice would you give coaches on how to help unlock their athlete's potential i think very simply it's time if you can give if you can give people your time then they believe you care they believe you care about their well-being their career path their success on an individual level as much as a team level um so i think if you can give players time even if you know it could be 10 minutes after training you chat on the side of the pitch like a little pointer of if you're not in the team say oh, you know if you can work on this then if i can see you produce this on in on the training pitch then i'm going to be more likely to pick you or if it's in the analysis room going through clips and saying oh this is this is what i'm talking about this is what i think you can improve on this is what you do well this is what if you improve on you have more chance of playing more often time i think is is such a big thing i think that just that shows you care well, david final question for you what is it that excites you about your future i think the the different experiences that I could I could come across. And what I mean by that is I've been in football for 10, 11, professional football for 10, 11 years now and experienced so many different things and so many different challenges within the game, whether that be player finals, losses and wins, promotions, relegations, um, injuries, disappointment from selection, um, conflict in the dressing room, support in the dressing room, like every, you know, the whole the whole range of emotions and experiences. But even having said that, it's also been quite limited. It's also been pretty much entirely male dominated. It's pretty much, it's been completely about competition and performance. It's been in um, the spotlight it's been in front of crowds. There are so many like opportunities, career paths that I could take that are completely different and can help me build my experience in life and my character, I guess, and, and, and have lessons that I would never be able to, to have from the football world. And perhaps that may never happen. Perhaps I'll stay in football, but even if I stay in football, it will still be on a very different level, whether that be from a management perspective or sports psychologist perspective, it will still be wildly different in terms of experiences and, and learnings than what I'm currently going through. So that's, I find that really exciting and I really look forward to that. And I think in some ways, I think I could see myself enjoying it more, even more than my football career. 
Well, listen, thank you for sharing a, a wonderful insight into or on a subject that isn't when I say it's not X's and O's, it's far from that. The importance of getting someone and helping someone on their path, their journey in life, uh, of of being able to deal with these anxieties that are probably not, or maybe they are, they may, they may be more prevalent now than what they've ever been. So can I thank you on behalf of David, myself, and all the listeners, and good luck to you in the future. Yeah, thanks. It's been, been really great to have a chat. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.